Good morning. Please open with me in your copy of the scriptures to the first chapter of John. The Gospel according to John, chapter 1. As you turn there, let me observe that in the last three sermons that you've heard from this pulpit, we have declared the scriptural truth that the Lord Jesus is fully God. He is uncaused. He is preexistent. The Lord Jesus is co-equal in glory and power and wisdom with the Father and with the Spirit. We've declared to you that Jesus is also fully human, just as you and I, having condescended from his home and glory, laid aside his rank and dignity and authority, and in humility coming, being born to a young Jewish virgin, he was made fully flesh. He's as much God as the Father and the Spirit and as much man as you and I. You've heard us declare that Jesus is light and Jesus is life. He is the revealer of God to men. Jesus is the giver of grace and truth. The Bible tells us that Jesus is rejected by many and received by few. That those who do receive Jesus are those that have been spiritually born by the will of God, by the grace of God. Well, John the baptizer occupies a large part of our text today, but John the baptizer is not the point of this sermon. Jesus Christ is the point of this sermon. And I pray that the Holy Spirit of God will bring some very important questions to our mind this morning as we look at these verses together. Questions like this one. So, in light of all the biblical truths that we've heard so far from John chapter 1, how should these biblical truths affect my life? That's always a good question. How do these biblical truths affect my life? I want us to consider the biblical truths that I have just spoken about to you and the ones that we'll see in the text this morning in light of John the baptizer's answer to questions that he got from religious leaders. And those questions that he got sound something like this as we would apply them to ourselves. Who am I? Why do I do what I do? What is it that I believe that the Bible says about Jesus Christ? How much do I believe it? Those are questions that we ought to ask ourselves regularly. May God's Spirit be pleased to put those questions to our heart this morning. The sermon comes from John chapter 1, verses 19 through 37. And I have four points. The first one is the identity of the baptizer. The second is the humility of the baptizer. The third is the message of the baptizer. And the fourth point is the persistence of the baptizer. Will you look with me now, beginning in John chapter 1, verse 19, as I read God's Word. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? 
if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. This is the Word of God. May He bless the reading and the preaching of His Word this morning. Father, we come before You now giving You thanks that You've allowed us together to sing praises to our risen Lord Jesus, to offer prayers to You in His name. Lord, we thank You for the text that has been preserved for us, and we thank You, Lord, that You still speak with Your Word from power when it is read. Father, I pray that You would bless the reading of it, and Lord, I pray that You would bless the preaching of it this morning. Spirit, I pray that you would use me as your vessel to preach gospel truth. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. The first point is this, and it's found in verses 19 through 23. The identity of John the baptizer is rooted in Christ. His identity is rooted in Christ. That's where he drew his identity from was his relationship to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 19. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Now people have been coming from all around. John the baptizer had accumulated a very large following. There was quite the buzz going on in Israel. And the religious leaders were not only interested, they were very concerned. Primarily, it appears, they were concerned about their power and their position and their prestige, as most religious leaders are and have been for a long, long time. The question that they asked him, who are you, was really an indication of their spiritual blindness. If they had been, been involved in what God's program was and what God's kingdom was, they'd have been there. They'd have been in support of John the Baptist. They would have been looking for the Messiah who was just around the corner. He confessed, and he did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. Now, they didn't ask him if he was the Christ. That's not what's recorded in our book. But he understood, he understood the intent of their question. He didn't deny it. He didn't take any credit that wasn't his. He simply said straight to the point, I am not the Christ. Then they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? Why would they ask him that? Well, at the end of our Old Testament, God has promised that Elijah would come before the last day. The Lord Jesus did go on to say that, that John the baptizer had come in the spirit and the power of Elijah, but his answer was, I am not. He was not Elijah returning to earth. They said, are you the prophet? What prophet? The prophet that had been promised by God through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 18. They said, are you that prophet? Many of them thought of that prophet as the Messiah of Israel in that day. Are you the prophet? He said, no, no, I'm not the prophet. 
Look at verse 22. So they said to him, well then who are you? This is the second time that they've asked him this question. He hasn't answered it directly up to this point. He's told them who he's not. He hasn't told them who that he is. They said, who are you? Then they gave a little additional information to him. We need to give an answer to those who sent us. You see, young man, we have authority. We have been sent here by the religious leaders from Jerusalem out here into this wilderness to find out who it is that you are and what it is that you claim. The things that you're saying to determine how they line up with the official version. Give us an answer. What do you say about yourself? They indicated to him this. That he was not a Pharisee and he was not a Sadducee and he was not a Levite. So he really wasn't anybody of any importance. They said to him, essentially, you haven't been sent and you aren't accepted by any part of Judaism that we know about. You aren't authorized to be here and to preach by any group that we recognize. Son, you have no credentials. You have no education. We want to know more about you. They had every intention of intimidating him into giving him exactly what they wanted. But John the baptizer would not be intimidated. Oh, that God would give us more men with the kind of spine that he had. He would not be intimidated by the religious leaders. Now, there are a lot of ways that he could have answered that question. He could have said, and justly so. He would have been telling the truth if he'd have said to them, I'm the son of a priest. He was. He could have said, I am the product of a rather miraculous conception. He was. He could have said to them, I am the one that was filled with the Holy Spirit from my mother's womb. We kill, still can't explain that today. I can't make that fit. But it was true. He could have told them that. He could have said, I am the one that is preaching repent and be baptized. He could have said, look, I am the one that is being followed by thousands. He would have been telling the truth if he had said to them, I am the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And he would have certainly been telling them the truth if he just said to them, I am the one, I am the one who baptized the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Messiah. The one that you are looking for, I am the one that baptized him. All of those things would have been true. He could have looked inward at himself and he could have drawn his identity from those things, but he did not. His identity was formed by his relationship to Jesus Christ and through the Scriptures. Look at his answer in verse 23. He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. He answered who he was with a quotation from Scripture, straight from the Scripture, Isaiah 40 in verse 3. He said, I am a voice. I am only a voice. I am not here to be seen. I am only here to be heard. I am not here to be seen. I am only here to be heard. Where are you, John? You're out here in the wilderness. Why are you in the wilderness? If you are the voice of the Word, why are you not at the temple in Jerusalem? Because Jehovah was not there. Because He had removed Himself from the temple. Ichabod, the glory has departed. The religion of the Jews was legalism, pure and simple. John came from outside the dead religion of the Jews. 
The brittle wineskins of Judaism could not hold the new wine of grace in Jesus Christ. The torn and shrunken fabric and the worn out fabric of Judaism could not sustain the new fabric of grace in Jesus Christ. John said, this is not about me. You're looking in the wrong place. This is not about me. This is about one that is much greater than I. The Lord is coming. Prepare to meet your God. John found his identity in Jesus Christ. Where do I find my identity? Where do you find your identity? The people who are supposed to know a lot about identity tell us that it comes from a lot of different inputs. We're socialized, we inherit some, the culture that we grow up in. I don't deny any of those things. All of those things are true. But ultimately, at the end of the day, for those that belong to the Lord Jesus Christ, our identity is not determined by who our parents were, where we were educated, or even if we were educated, where we work, how much we earn, who we married, how many children we have. Our identity is derived directly from being a child of God through God's grace and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second point I'd like to speak about for a moment is from verses 24 through 28. And that is this. The humility. The humility of the baptizer regarding Jesus Christ. You see, John the baptizer understood his role as a servant. He understood that he was a servant of Christ. He understood that Christ is supreme. That he was only a servant. That he was a servant of the king. Look at verse 24. Now they'd been sent from the Pharisees. And they asked him, they said, Then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, why are you baptizing? In other words, why do you do what you do, John? You see, baptism, the baptism of John was a baptism unto repentance. It's not Christian baptism. I think most of you know that, but let me just emphasize that, that the baptism that John the Baptist was doing was not the baptism that we do upon profession of faith. He was baptizing Israelites who had been in covenant with God but had broken that covenant. He was baptizing them to call the attention that they need to repent and come back into the right relationship to God. So baptism in and of itself was not a new concept to Jews, but what John was doing was a new concept. You see, the reason it was not new to them was because they baptized Gentile converts. If someone came from any place other than Judaism and wanted to enter into the, uh, the Jews' religion, they had to be baptized. And in the Jewish mind, that baptism signified cleansing. These people that were coming in that had not been born with Jewish blood in their veins were defiled and they needed to be cleansed. Here's what irritated the Jewish leaders about the baptism of John. They understood that what he was saying is that these Jews were defiled, and they needed to be cleansed. And he was applying to them what they'd applied only to the Gentiles. They were proud, they were arrogant, they were blind, and they were spiritually dead. John answered them and he said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Notice, John continues to shift the conversation away from himself to who? To Jesus Christ. Ultimately, John says, this is not about me. These leaders were spiritually blind and they were unrepentant. What is important is that there is one among you whom you do not recognize, he said. 
The purpose of what I am doing is to point the people to the one who is coming. He is the one that you should be asking about. He is the true light. I am only a lamp. He is the word. I am only a voice. Just a voice to point to the word. What I'm doing is preparing Israel to meet the promised one, the anointed one, the Christ of God. Even he who comes after me, he said, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Oh, when he said that, they understood a deep and rich meaning there. In that day, students of rabbis would attach themselves to rabbis, and they would follow them wherever they went, and they would listen to every word that they had to say. And it was very common for the students to do the menial task for the rabbis. But even the Jews thought that there were some tasks that were too menial for a student to do, the greatest of which was to remove the sandals from the rabbi's feet at the end of the day. That was so humiliating that it was not even requested of the rabbinic students to do that. And John identifies, and he said, I am not worthy. I am not worthy to even untie his sandals and remove them from his feet. John is clearly communicating to them a strong humility. As a matter of fact, John could not have more clearly communicated what he thought about the supremacy and the superiority of Christ and his position as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He could not have more clearly identified and indicated his humility toward the Lord Jesus. What about my humility? What about yours? You know, humility doesn't come naturally. That's not, uh, that's not one of the things that our flesh produces. The humility that's in us is there by the grace of God. Am I willing to assume my place and my role that the Lord God has given me as a servant of the Lord Jesus? That's a question that we should all ask ourselves from time to time. The third point is this. It's the message of the baptizer. And the message of the baptizer is, is that Jesus is the Lamb of God. In other words, he's saying that Jesus is the one that is to be sacrificed for sin. His message is the sacrifice of Christ. John understood that Jesus is the Lamb that must be sacrificed to satisfy God's wrath against sin. Look at verse 29. The next day, he, John, saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Now the next day here indicates to us that this is the second day. On this second day of this historical narrative that we're reading this morning, John the baptizer saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He proclaimed it, he announced it, he declared it to all who were standing there, including these religious leaders. Of all the ways that John could have identified Christ, he referred to him as the Lamb of God. Why? Why of all the ways that John could have introduced Christ, did he introduce him as the Lamb of God? Well, the Jews were looking for a prophet and a king to restore Israel to glory and sit on the throne. Whatever they perceived their problems to be, Whatever it was that the Jewish religious leaders perceived their problems to be, being separated from God by their sin was not among them. You see, they had no questions about repentance or forgiveness. They didn't ask John about repentance. They didn't ask John about forgiveness. 
The Jews were not looking for a Savior to make a suitable sacrifice for their sin to reconcile them to God. They had no question about sin or condemnation or wrath or judgment. Think of that. This delegation that represented the most admired and respected religious leaders of the day. It was true of the delegation. It was true of the admired and respected religious leaders of the day. They were blinded by sin, and they were ignorant of their condemnation before God. They were dead in sin, and they did not feel the weight of God's condemnation and wrath that lie heavy upon them. By pointing to Jesus as Lamb of God, John immediately called to their mind the concept of blood sacrifice for sin. When he referred to him as the Lamb of God, he would have immediately called to the mind of these religious leaders the concept of blood sacrifice for sin. These men did not know God, but they knew the Old Testament. They knew it very well. I've read that many of them had it memorized. See, the concept of the Lamb of God would have brought to their mind a multitude of things straight from the Scriptures that they knew so well. They would have thought about the innocent blood that God shed in Genesis chapter 3 to provide a covering for Adam and Eve, the first blood sacrifice, the death of an innocent for the guilty. They would have thought certainly about Father Abraham and Isaac as God had sent him up on the mountain to sacrifice his only son Isaac, the son of promise. They would have thought about Abraham raising the knife ready to plunge it into Isaac's chest when God himself when God provided himself a lamb as a substitute for Isaac. They would have thought certainly of the paschal lamb of Exodus, the lamb whose blood was applied to the doorposts on the night that God delivered Israel out of Egypt, and when seen by the Lord God, caused him to pass over the house which had the blood on the doorpost as the angel of death passed through the land of Egypt. They would have thought of that. They would have thought of the many, many, many unblemished lambs that were slain, one every morning and one every evening at the temple sacrifice. Rivers of blood channeled away from the temple and into the brook Kidron and finally out of the city of Jerusalem. They would have thought of that. They would have thought of the death of those lambs and the shedding of that blood for the covering of their sin. But maybe out of all, maybe out of all the scriptures that they would thought of, when they thought about the lamb, that would take away the sin of the world. Maybe their mind would have gone to Isaiah chapter 53. Maybe they would have thought of verse 7 there, where Isaiah speaks of the lamb that was led to slaughter. The lamb that was led to slaughter. As they, as they thought about that, they would have remembered this, that that lamb, that lamb was despised and rejected by men. It was that lamb that bore our griefs and sorrows. It was that lamb who had our sins and iniquities laid upon him. It was that lamb that was stricken and smitten and afflicted. It was that lamb who was the one that was wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. It was that lamb, the one whose chastisement and stripes would provide healing from sin and peace with God. The lamb was the one who would be cut off for the transgressions of the people of God. This lamb is the one who would make his grave with the wicked, even though he would do no violence or even say anything deceitful. And it was this lamb that Jehovah God would be pleased to crush. 
And out of the anguish of this lamb's soul, by knowledge of him, many would be accounted righteous because he bore their iniquities. And it's this lamb that will be satisfied to shed his blood. This is the lamb. This is the one that bears the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's what John communicated to them when he pointed that long bony finger at Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And calling Him the Lamb, John identified Him as innocent and gentle. He identified Jesus as being spotless and blameless. And He identified Him as a sacrifice, a substitute, sufficient and satisfactory to God. For the sin of the world. John pointed out that Jesus was the Lamb of God. The Lamb that belongs to God. The Lamb that was provided by God. And the Lamb that is acceptable to God. In declaring that Jesus takes away the sin of the world, John is identifying that all of humanity is separated from God because of sin. And only a perfect sacrifice provided by God is able to take away sin. He was indicating that Jesus is a man and the only acceptable sacrifice to God for sin. Therefore, Jesus is the perfect man. He was indicating that all of the blood sacrifices up until now were simply shadows and types and pictures and prophecies of the one real and true effective sacrifice that the Lord Jesus Christ would make as the Lamb of God. He was indicating clearly to them that Jesus would provide a substitutionary sacrifice that would be sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God against the sin of all whom he substituted himself for. You see, in calling him the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, John the baptizer preached the necessity for Jesus Christ to make the substitutionary blood sacrifice that was required to bear away the sins of all of his people, not just the Jews. John went on and said, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. We know that the baptizer was older than his cousin Jesus Christ our Lord. John here is speaking of the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. He said, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, here it is, here's the clear and definitive purpose, for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. Repentance, yes, but not ultimately so. The ultimate purpose of John's baptism was this, was in order that Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, might be revealed to Israel and by extension to all of the world. That's a plain statement of his purpose. Verse 32, John said, he bore witness. He gave this testimony. He said, I saw the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God. I saw that the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Him. Now the word that John the Apostle used to record what the baptizer said here indicates this, that it was not a vision, it was not a dream, it was not an impression, but in some way, shape, or form, the baptizer was communicating that with his eyes, with his two eyeballs, with the lens and the coina and the retina and the optic nerve, he saw the Spirit of God descend upon God the Son. Just as the Father who had sent him said he would. He saw that with his physical eyes at the baptism of the Lord Jesus. And he said that it remained on him. The Spirit of God abode on him. The Lord Jesus is the one to whom the Spirit is given without measure and will not, no, not ever be withdrawn. 
because he is perfect. In verse 33, John said, I myself did not know him. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on him you see the Spirit descend and remain. He is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Interesting. John learned of Jesus, and Jesus was identified to John by the direct revelation from God. He learned it from no man. It was directly revealed to him by God. John went on to say that this, he said, I baptize with water. The one that sent me to, to baptize sent me to baptize with water. But he said this, he said, the one upon whom you see the Spirit descend and abide, it is he who, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, water baptism in that day signified cleansing from defilement. But spirit baptism, the baptism that we receive from Jesus Christ, signifies life, life, purity and life. John says, don't focus on me, folks. Don't focus on me. I'm not the point here. I'm not the subject that you should be concerned about. You should be concerned about the one that stands among you, whom you are so blind and so dead you cannot even recognize the Messiah of Israel, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And then John put a punctuation mark on that in verse 34. Look, he said, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He said to all those that were present, Behold, the Lamb of God, the one that is anointed by God, the Christ of God, the very Son of God, God himself in the flesh. This was a clear declaration that Jesus Christ is God, that he is full deity with no exception. That was a strong message. That was a bold message. That was an accurate message. And I want you to notice that there is no record in the word of God that that message on that day moved anyone to do anything. Let me say that again. This bold, accurate, scriptural, godly message that the baptizer preached on that day, there's no record in the scripture anywhere that that message on that day moved anyone to do anything. Which brings us to our fourth point, the persistence of the baptizer in preaching Christ. The persistence of the baptizer in preaching Christ. John stood out there among those Pharisees and Sadducees and those Levites and that throng of people that followed him everywhere he went, and there even in the very presence, the physical presence of the Lord Jesus, having preached that scriptural sermon, John looked around and he, he didn't see any activity. I wonder what crossed that man's mind. Trey, you know what it's like to preach your heart out and not see anything happen. More times than not, right, brother? I wonder what it was like for the baptizer to think, 
Here he is. He's finally here. Things are about to change. Here comes Jesus. He's walking this way. I'm going to get to point him out to everybody. I'm going to get to declare about him what God has told me to declare about him. And he did. He did it faithfully. He did it accurately. And he did it boldly. And nobody moved. Maybe he questioned the message. I don't know. I don't know what ran through his mind. I don't know what all went through his mind in the intervening period until the next day. But I know this. He didn't start a basketball league. He didn't have a car show. He didn't come up with a lot of programs. He didn't determine that the message was at fault. No matter what he thought of during the intervening period, he didn't come up with anything other than the true and accurate message of Jesus Christ. He didn't tweak it. He didn't trim it. He didn't twist it. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't cast a little shadow on it. He didn't do anything to make it more palatable to the Jewish religious leaders. Look at what he preached the next day. Verse 35, the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said... The same thing he said the day before. Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Amen. You know what that is? That's the grace of God at work. That's the grace of God at work. The effective calling of God's Holy Spirit. Same message, two days in a row. First day, nothing. Second day, you don't change the message, folks. You preach the same message. And in God's time, in God's way, when He's pleased, He'll give God's life to God's people. That's exactly what He did here. You don't need a preacher to make an application of that truth to you. You understand the application of that truth. The youngest of us in the room understand the application of that truth, and that is this is that there is one gospel that saves the souls of men, and that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We preach that gospel, and if it does not save men and women, they will not be saved. We don't have the responsibility. We don't have the authority. Yea, we are commanded over and again in Scripture to not mess with God's message. The Lord Jesus Christ is supreme. He is God. We are His servants. He is the Lamb of God, and the gospel of God belongs to God. It is the gospel that is God's. It is the gospel that God sends. It is the gospel that God gives, and it is the gospel that we preach. We will preach it this Sunday. We will preach it next Sunday. We will preach it the Sunday after that. There may be some Sundays that we see God use it to move His people, and there may be a lot of Sundays that we don't see any movement in His people. That's not our job. And it's not our job to make it more palatable. It's not our job to put in place things that would cause people to come and associate themselves with us for any reason other than the fact that we trust Christ and Him crucified. Now don't hear me say what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we can't do things that are fun like having potlucks. I'm not saying that we can't have Christian education like Sunday school. Don't hear me say those things. What I'm telling you is, is that Jesus Christ and Him crucified has got to be at the very absolute center of everything we say, everything we do, everything that we preach. 
To change that is to change from the gospel to a false gospel. And I would recommend to you about false gospels to read the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. John persevered with the message that God gave him. And as we finish this year, and as we go into the next year, none of us would have ever thought this year would have wound up the way that it did. I've got a pretty good idea that not anybody among us here this morning that knows how next year is going to wind up. But the one thing that we can do is be obedient to God and preach the truth of Jesus Christ over and over and over. You know, John the baptizer is not the only one that identified the Lord Jesus as the Lamb of God. Trey read for that for us this morning from Revelation chapter 5. Did you know, did you know that in the book of Revelation the Lord Jesus is identified as the Lamb not less than 27 times? Let's look at that in chapter 5 again just for a moment. Between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, John the Apostle now, John the Revelator said, I saw a lamb standing. Who was that? That was Jesus. As though it had been slain. Do you understand that even in heaven above when the Lord Jesus Christ stands before the throne, He appears as a lamb that has been slain. That's how He presents Himself in glory. He got seven horns and seven eyes. What in the world does that mean? Well, in apocalyptic literature, one of the things that it clearly means is this, is that that the seven horns means that he has all power. And the seven eyes means that he has all knowledge. Look at the response. Verse 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands. This is what they were saying with a very loud voice. They said, worthy is the lamb who was slain. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever. Praise God. Praise the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. It is my prayer that the Lord God would give us grace, each and every one of us, to find our identity in our relationship to Jesus Christ. I pray that God would give us grace to humbly perform the service that He has given each and every one of us, individually and corporately, to accomplish for Him. I pray that God would give us grace to believe and declare the message that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And I pray that God would give us the grace to never, ever diminish or add to the message of the necessity of the sufficiency of the substitutionary sacrificial death of Jesus Christ that satisfies the wrath of God against the sins of His people. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we are grateful and thankful that our Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of everything that there is, the King of glory, condescended to lay aside his rank and dignity 
and authority and humbly come and be born in the womb of a virgin, never ceasing to be God for a moment, but being made flesh just as we are. Father, tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin, the Lamb of God came not only to reveal God to us, but to be the mediator between God and us. He took on flesh in order that he might die in our place, in order that we might live with him eternally. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were made sin for us in order that we might be made the righteousness of God in you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for willingly sacrificing yourself in our place. We are not worthy. You alone are worthy. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us the grace to find our relationship in you and to, with humility, serve where you have us to believe and declare the gospel, the good news that you save sinners. And Lord Jesus, prevent us from ever adding to or diminishing from the glorious gospel of God's grace in Jesus Christ. Amen.